our case against the net zero strategy um, highlighted quite clearly that the government's really lacking sector-specific policies, it's lacking sector-specific strategies. Um, even the plans that it does make are inadequate. We know from the IPCC we've got about seven years, so forget 2050, we've got really seven years to tackle climate change and climate crisis. Hello and welcome to Building Better Business, the podcast that explores how business can shape our world for the better and also how we can all help. This episode is actually you know, it's quite an exciting and very important episode uh, because today we're going to look at the role of the law and government in supporting building better business. And by that we mean business that looks beyond financial capital and looks at how we act responsibly for the planet and people. And in this episode, we're going to cover the role of the UK government currently, uh, how the cost of living crisis is affecting our ability to get as focused on climate change as we need to, and the kind of legal changes we need and how those legal changes can make a difference. You know, th this episode is hugely important and exciting because of the subject matter, but also because we have got four expert guests in the room, and that makes it exciting because of the number, but also because of the incredible knowledge and expertise we have uh, today. First of all, I'd like to introduce each of our guests. We have Becky Anderson, the Director of Engagement at the Chancery Lane Project. Uh, welcome, Becky. Hello. We've also got Mari Littlewood, uh, the Campaign Manager for the Better Business Act. Hi, Mari. Hi. We've also got Sahil Keir here, Senior Public Law and Regulatory Solicitor from the Good Law Project. Hi, Sahil. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. And finally, we've got Zach Polanski, the deputy leader of the Green Party. Fantastic to have you here too, Zach. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to it. I think because we've got a you know, relatively large group of people and quite a, a specific subject matter to cover, it'd be great just to hear from each of you a little bit about what you're doing and how it's working. And I mean, first of all, Sahil, can you tell us a little bit about the Good Law Project? And some of the work you're you're doing? Sure. So, so the Good Law Project is a team of campaigners and, and lawyers. So we've sort of got a campaign function and a, and a legal function. But our sort of big ticket, quite simple mission is to use the law for a better world. And over the last, we're still a very young organisation, but over the last two or three years, we've focused on uh, two or three key work streams. One is working on improving the quality of democracy. Uh, so what we call our good governance work stream. Uh, we do a lot of work in social justice and promoting equality. And and the third, uh, which I think is probably the most relevant today, is our is our environmental work stream, which is actually uh, probably our fastest growing work stream at the minute. We're an organization whose model is quite different from the traditional environmental NGOs or other, other charities. Uh, we're very crowdfunded. Um, I think 80% of the money that comes in to run the Good Law Project comes from people donating under £10. So we're talking thousands and thousands of people who chip in small amounts every month to promote our work. What that means is that we are a little bit free of, of the shackles that come with working for organisations that often um, rely on donations or grants. And, and that sort of really allows us to pursue an agenda that sometimes isn't popular or sometimes isn't easy to fund. And the environmental work streams are a really good example of that, where we are in the middle of litigation, but have also brought some really exciting litigation in the past. Um, just last year, oh, sorry, earlier this year, we had a noticeable success alongside Kleinert and Friends of the Earth challenging the government's 
net zero strategy that the that the court ultimately found was unlawful and and it needed a lot of filling in between the gaps but we're also bringing some really interesting litigation on pollution into our waterways and trying to advance novel arguments that the court doesn't often see so uh, ideas like the public trust doctrine that that the government holds certain assets um in in trust for the public you know so so we're going into areas that aren't really traditionally explored by lawyers and and courts um, and and it's our model that allows us to do it so it's it's a really exciting organization to be uh, to be a part of it sounds um as you say a really exciting organization to be part of and a really powerful approach as well and it's great to hear of the success uh, so far becky can you t- tell us a bit about the chancery lane project yeah i'd love to um so the chancery lane project has a, a very simple idea at its heart which is that as every contract is a generator uh, of carbon and greenhouse gases every contract has the power to be a decarbonizing force and that can be done through contracts and contract clauses and the beauty of that is of course is that if you set net zero targets as a business if you start putting these clauses into your contracts you're effectively turning what are voluntary targets and voluntary goals into something which is backed by the force of contract law so very simple idea how do you execute it well we executed it by going out to the legal profession and saying hey everybody why don't we sit down and use our expertise not necessarily just pure environmental knowledge and law, but expertise in finance and employment and pensions and my specialist area, which is just commercial contracting generally. What if we took our knowledge in those areas and built contract clauses to do for climate goals what they currently do for profit and quality and things like that? And there was an amazing outpouring from the community of lawyers, uh, 2,300 individual lawyers, procurement professionals and others came on board, helped us draft clauses, and now we have a bank of, I think, at at last count, 120 contract clauses published on our website for free for businesses to go and take and use as a resource to turn their voluntary goals into goals which are backed by contract law and can be enforced by contract law. And I'm very pleased to say a a large number, a good number of organisations are actually using those right now out there in the wild. Mari, can you tell us a bit about the Better Business Act and your campaigning? The Better Business Act was born from the B Corp movement in the UK. Um, and the B Corp movement, there is, uh, we've just hit a really big milestone with the B Corp movement of a thousand B Corps um, last week. Um, and so that's a thousand in the UK and 6,000 globally. So it's really fast moving and fast growing, especially within the UK. So the B Corp movement um, is a movement of companies who are are verified by B-Lab UK in the UK to to meet higher standards of social environmental performance and transparency and accountability. So they're independently verified um, and scored against that. And then as part of this, they also change their articles of association to align people and planet with profit in their articles of association. So it's really the really the aligning interest part that we're looking at as the Better Business Act and looking at kind of how we use that to scale up that um, change and that level of business as a force for good. So with the kind of urgency around climate change and inequality and, and cost of living at the moment, we're, we're looking, we know that the kind of really, really urgent wider change is needed. So we need to be kind of scaling that up and making that a mandatory change. So all of that has led to 
the Better Business Act, and it's a campaign run by B-Lab UK, um, and we're looking for a change to Section 172 of the Companies Act, so quite specific, covering um, directors' duties, and we have kind of four key principles of the the campaign that we're we're doing, which is uh, the first of those is aligning the interests in in law, so looking at people, planet, and profit as um, as aligned, um, moving away from the idea of shareholder primacy. Um, empowering directors to can make longer term decisions um, and opening up the conversation to to be having that about lots of different interests within the boardroom, making this mandatory. So instead of it being a kind of opt in, it's mandatory for everyone. Um, and then it's reflected in company reporting as well. As a kind of update for where we are with our campaigning, we, we launched um, about 18 months ago in April 2021. Um, and we have um, grown a coalition of businesses that back this change, including kind of um, the likes of Innocent, um, Anglian Water, Iceland, um, lots and lots of SMEs from across the country. Um, and we're now, that coalition is now about 1,500 businesses who are backing the change. And we use those businesses to talk to government and to try to kind of push them on the change that we want to see. So we're, we're doing a lot of kind of work across parties to try and influence there. Again, another fantastic example of the amazing work that can be done and the difference that can be made. I, I know at Cafe Direct, we're very proud to have supported the, the Better Business Act and also to be, you know, the, a, a B Corps. And um, when we joined in 2018 as the first coffee company in the UK, we thought this is great. And then a number of coffee companies have come on board, I mean, quite a number. When we recertified a few weeks ago, it was great to move the the level of uh, certification up. But one of the things, picking up on your, your points there, Mari, was um, we have articles of association that are quite specific and that you know, very explicit about the role of smallholder farmers in our, our business and the the way we put profitability back into communities. But we've just put ours completely in line with B Corps because uh, at first we were sort of, well, ours are pretty precise. But I think the B Corps approach has helped us improve climate change within those articles. So it's you know, really good. Great. Well, you know, I'd like to move on to now introduce Zach and it's fantastic to have you here. I'd love to hear a bit more about the Green Party. So I think the very obvious thing that people know the Green Party for is protecting the planet and protecting the environment. And in fact, I'm elected on the London Assembly and I chair London's Environment Committee. I think, however, I'm not here to say that, you know, we want to do other things other than protecting the environment, because actually that is core to everything. But actually, there's no environmental justice without racial, social and economic justice, too. And what I'm essentially putting forward there is an argument about intersectionality. Now, what does that mean? That means when you look at something like the air that we breathe, the most toxic air, particularly in cities like London, is often where you have working class communities or people of colour. And so something I see as one of the Green Party's leading missions is to make sure that we're protecting some of the most vulnerable people in our society, or those communities that aren't vulnerable, but for whatever reason, feel like they're not represented or they don't have an elected voice. So the Green Party's mission really is to make sure that we're both there for environmental justice, but social justice too, because you can't have one without the other. Now, how does that relate to the conversation we're about to have? Well, I think a lot of these changes need to happen at the government level. And whenever I'm on uh, the mainstream media, often commentators are very keen about asking me about my personal credentials. And actually, I am vegan. I don't fly. I cycle everywhere. But actually, that is missing the point because this can't be about individual responsibility. I largely do those things, so I can't be called a hypocrite. But actually, what we really need is change from government. And we need government facilitating good, ethical, sustainable business. And we know that where business is doing that, that's absolutely 
something to be encouraged because essentially businesses that are at the heart of their communities, they're working with people that are inclusive and are doing good things for the planet are things that we need to encourage and incentivize. Those companies that are making their money off the back of fossil fuels or exploiting conflict around the world are obviously things that we need to stop. And all of those things need to be filtered through government, having good law, making sure those mechanisms and frameworks are protected. And we've seen some of the terrible things that happened recently when we do go too far down the free market approach. But I won't go much further with that in this opening comment because I'm sure we'll get there during the conversation. So um, refreshing to get that interconnectivity um, or, or intersectionality, as you called it, because, you know, Cafe Direct, we were born out of kind of social justice and making sure that farmers got paid well. And over time, it's quite clear that's completely connected with climate justice as well and that the, the two are linked together. And I think anybody who thinks it's just about um, climate change and doesn't see what's going to happen to society is missing the, the whole issue and some of the some of the most, um, I guess, some of the most dangerous and devastating consequences of not dealing with this in a, a, a in the way that needs to be dealt with. But no, well, fantastic to get through the intros in the first four hours. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and um, now it's it's amazing to have all four of you here because on some of these podcasts we 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 talk to businesses and we talk to some wonderful people, but they're working in businesses that are not designed to deliver in the way that you you four are suggesting. And I think. As, as human beings, I think it sometimes strikes me a lot of these people, they know that we need to change things and we know they need to look at how people can be treated more fairly and how the planet can be, you know, looked after properly. But a lot of the structures of these organisations and the um, articles of association are at odds with where we have to get to and we have to get too far. So it's so important to have your, your voices in the room today. Um, Zach, we'll go come straight back to you, even though you've only just finished and you're trying to get your breath back. You know, what are what are your thoughts about the role of government and what government really can do to support business to, to address the issue of climate change? I think there's a huge role there for government in both supporting businesses and taking their own steps to protect people and planet. I think the most obvious place to start is that extraordinary experiment that we just had with the Liz Truss government and Kwasi Kwarteng as chancellor, because we saw how quickly things career out of control when you defy rules, regulations, institutional protections. Those things are there for a reason. And I'm really pleased to be on this call with people who are in organizations who are doing massively great work to protect those things. And, and it is really important because those are the mechanisms that keep us in place. If the Bank of England had not stepped in, millions of people would have lost their pensions. So I think it's clear how dangerous things were getting. There's also a real problem at the moment with the retained EU law bill. This is essentially a bill that's looking to rip up about 4,000 pieces of legislation by, I think, December 2023 that came from the European Union. Now, I'm not suggesting that we rehash the, the Brexit argument on this podcast because we've only got a, a short amount of time. But I think many people, wherever they stood on that argument, would recognize that EU law was built up over a long period of time. And there's mechanisms in place there to protect nature, to protect climate, and to protect people going about their everyday lives. And I think a cavalier attitude to just rip those things up for ideological reasons without taking the time, the consultation, and the democratic duty to make sure that you're building that argument and that you're crucially protecting people and planet is really a negligence of duty. So I'm always careful when I answer these questions not to sound like I'm coming out swinging against the government and saying, you know, that they're doing everything wrong. But it is getting increasingly difficult as time goes on to, to find the positives in this. So it would feel a very 
typical political answer to say we need a general election, but to, to find a, an answer that isn't so inherently political. I think the government need to take a step back and look at what is the role of government and government have to be there to protect people and planet and not vested interests. And so I'd love to see, for instance, a wealth tax is one thing we've been campaigning on, a 1% tax on the wealthiest 1%. So the University of Greenwich did sums on this, and it looks like that would raise about £75 billion a year, which you could then put back into spending on green infrastructure. And of course, it's that infrastructure that businesses need to flourish too. So these things aren't in contrast. You can absolutely protect the planet and grow a business at the same time. There's a different conversation to be had about what growth looks like, and it can't just be GDP, but it also has to be well-being, health, inclusion in the community. But I know the best businesses are already looking at those things too, because they see themselves as part of the community and those things being one of the same. Thank you for that. And thank you for pulling short of a general election next Thursday or something. Um, <laughs> Sahil, moving to you, because we were moving into to an area that your I think your expertise is in uh, with this is, yeah, it, it is clear and it's going to become increasingly clear in this call how important the role of government is. And you are kind of fresh from taking action in this area. What, what's your view on all this? Fundamentally, I think it's, it's difficult as a lawyer and not a climate scientist uh, to, to piece together what the government should do. Our case against the net zero strategy um, highlighted quite clearly that the government's really lacking sector-specific policies, it's lacking sector-specific strategies. Um, even the plans that it does make are inadequate. Uh, one of the big revelations from the case was uh, when the government basically admitted that even the quantified emissions in their plan actually only deliver 95% of the cuts that we need. And I, and I know 5% doesn't seem like a lot, but when you think about the volume of emissions that, that we generate, 5% is, is a game changer. But what I often, often think uh, from a legal perspective is that with all of these things, the government needs a more joined up approach. Businesses crave certainty, uh, consumers crave certainty, but all of these sorts of uncertainties are unhelpful. But the more fundamental uncertainty is at the minute, the government doesn't know what the regulators are doing. The regulators don't know what government is doing. And in all of those businesses and consumers are completely lost. I know I'm, I'm in a group of people who who are, I suppose are used to working with, with good business, uh, but there's also a lot of bad business out there for whom uh, the regulatory framework or, or the sort of non-existent regulatory framework actually is, is baked into their business models. Uh, a lot of work that we're doing at the minute, for example, around sewage pollution um, in our waterways is it, a classic example where between the EA, DEFRA, the new Office of the Environment Protector. No one knows where responsibilities lie anymore. And that means businesses can get away with a lot. Where they do get fined, it's almost a sort of business cost for them. Beyond a point, it is obviously imperative that businesses take the step up, but it's it has to come from the top. So if I was sort of, that's my sort of biggest specific issue that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. But I guess there's a there's a bit of a wider point around what we see the role of government to be at, at the Good Law Project, which is they need to believe and sell the wider vision. A green recovery, a green economy is is the economy of the future. But given the politics and the back and forth, the changes in government, no one's actually stood up and set out a vision of what that looks like. And um, we often do speak as part of our campaigning work to loads of parliamentarians, and Zach will know this better than I do, but who want to make this positive case, but there's so much tinkering around the edges and not enough joined up thinking. I mean, I think a lot of 
government regulators, businesses, consumers are, are, have sort of bought into this green and pleasant land uh, style thinking about nature in this country. But again, as Zach alluded to, this potential bonfire of regulations that's that's on the horizon. We are an incredibly nature poor country. If you actually take a step back, who's selling, who's making that vision? Yeah, we, we do think that the government needs to be more active in, in, in setting out what the future looks like. Leadership and a clear vision and a, a route to get there as well. If I can move to, to Mari, I think um, the Better Business Act, I mean, that's a, a really important uh, change. How, how receptive is government to making changes to the Companies Act? In the last year or so, as Sahil mentioned, uh, with his campaigning work, we have been building a lot of um, kind of cross-party support for the campaign and doing a lot of kind of behind-the-scenes work with parliamentarians. And we have a cross-party support for the campaign, so it fits much better with kind of, I guess, the the messaging that's coming from from the Labour Party, but very big support from the Green Party, from Lib Dems, SNP, and and, and some Conservative support for it as well. So a few interesting conversations that we've had over the last um, sort of year or so, particularly um, with around our Better Business Day, which was uh, the day that we brought the coalition into Parliament last April. And a really kind of exciting and big milestone for the campaign. At around that time, we we spoke to Margaret Hodge um, and Jonathan Janogli, uh, both MPs, and and both on kind of different sides of this when this uh, when the Companies Act was going through in two thousand and six. And uh, really interesting, kind of both of them agree that the that this needs to be relooked at and thought of again. And actually, kind of a, a really interesting article that they they wrote about that. So showing, I think, consensus that actually the law needs to catch up with what is um, the conversations that's ha- that are happening in in the board. Rooms. Lots of businesses are already acting in this way, so I think it's really around kind of bringing the government on board with that and um, reflecting that that in the laws that we have that around business. Yeah, Becky, have you, what other thoughts have you got on this area? So I think I, I think there are three areas that I would look to when it comes to government. Firstly, as other people have mentioned, how they're legislating. You know, one of the p- things that comes up when I talk to businesses is the idea of a fair and level playing field, and this sense that some businesses are putting a lot of time and money into decarbonising their businesses, but there is that certain sense of am I paying extra money in the current economic climate to decarbonise, which is effectively giving somebody else a free pass to keep on polluting? And how does that stack up with my business? Um, And I think the government has a great deal of that they can do to level that playing field so that everybody feels comfortable. I think there's two other things that I would say. I think firstly, there's an absolute deluge, a, a tsunami of information about climate out there. And anybody who works in this area and who signs up to alerts, you will be absolutely drowning in information by the end of day one. And I think businesses, but particularly SMEs, are really struggling under the weight of that information. I remember during COVID, one of the things that I used to say was how much I appreciated Jonathan Van Tam when he came on and and said what was going on because I said, you know, I don't have the luxury of a Jonathan Fantam who sits in my pocket, who tells me on a daily basis what I should be doing to optimise this for for risk or to help other people manage their risk here. And that's what government can really do here. They can cut through this huge amount of information and they can say, actually, if you do this, that will have such a bigger impact than if you do this other thing. Because one of the things that we hear again and again is that the British public, and of course, who are the British public, but the people who work in businesses, 
and run businesses themselves, that they appreciate that climate change is really critical and really important. But when they you ask them, what is the one thing that you could do to massively cut a carbon footprint? they consistently don't know or they consistently give the wrong answers. So I think the government can do an awful lot there to help people cut through the noise and to help businesses cut through the noise, point them to the resources which are going to make the biggest impacts. And I think the third thing that they can do is that the government is a huge employer and a huge, not business, but a huge employer of suppliers uh, and supply chain. So if you take the construction industry, now globally the construction industry is estimated, or the built environment is estimated to account for about 39% of global emissions. That's the construction and the running of buildings. The government is the biggest construction customer in the UK and the power that they have through their own supply chains to um, review the carbon footprint of future construction deals, to do procurement, which is on a green basis, to decarbonise our built environment. I think there's an amazing opportunity there for them, not in their capacity as someone who makes laws, but in their capacity as someone who employs businesses to do a job. Some really great perspectives from everybody, but then to be able to sum it up in the way you've done there, Becky, is, is fantastic. I think any of us who, who work close to climate change, there's so much information and so much kind of fog as well. And um, I mean, one of the things that bothered me personally with the, with the COVID pandemic, you know, although there were some climate impacts that were positive because of the nature of changes in human behaviour uh, over the period, what I, what I really worried about was it was putting some of the uh, clear leadership and action around climate change off for two years. And my one of my biggest fears is now we're going to hide behind or we're going to have to deal with the cost of living crisis. And I'm, I am you know, personally very concerned that that's the next thing that gets in the way of dealing with the biggest issue before we get to the next thing. How do, how do we see, see this um, cost of living crisis and how does government take the right actions but also get to climate change? And maybe it's through the inter sectionality. Zach, do you want to kick us off? The cost of living crisis cannot slow down climate action. In fact, it needs to do the exact opposite. And actually, there are real opportunities in here amongst the work that needs to be done. So let me give you an example. One of the key things we need to do right now is insulate every single home in Britain that needs it. That's because the cheapest bill is the one that you don't have to pay. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that if your energy bill is reduced or effectively nothing because you're not having to turn the heating on because you've got a properly insulated home, then that's clearly going to help with the cost of living crisis. I've been pushing London Mayor Sadiq Khan on this for quite a while because one gap we have is people able to insulate these homes. So even if the government turn around, hopefully, and say there's now this pot of money to insulate homes as is starting to happen, but we need much more money. What isn't ready right now is the skills and training needed for people to actually be able to insulate the homes. And as I've been putting it to Sadiq Khan, we can't be, you know, relaxed back in our seat. We need to be a coiled spring ready to go. And I think this needs to be a major effort for this huge opportunity of the climate crisis to turn this into a Green New Deal where we get people working in sustainable businesses to tackle the climate crisis. We also need to be massively investing in renewables. And again, there's a huge industry waiting there ready to happen. The tragedy behind this is it could have happened. And in 2014, 2015, it was starting to happen. But David Cameron famously decided to cut the green crap. Apologies for my for the language, his words, not mine. Um, but that actually put us back a decade. And we've got to learn the lessons from that and make sure we are putting this investment in there. 
I think there's a real danger that we learn the wrong lessons from the Liz Truss government, which was around borrowing. Borrowing for unfunded tax cuts is a dangerous thing to do and you shouldn't be doing it. But borrowing for green investment and investing in our future of our society and making sure we're pumping money into this kind of circular economy and different ways of doing things is a massive investment we need to and should be making. The very small caveat I'd put on that just to finish is I've been pleased to see Keir Starmer starting to talk about green jobs and I'm, I'm glad he's picked up that language. But we need to be careful there with greenwashing too. So for instance, I've heard him talk about carbon capture and storage. Now that technology does not yet exist. And I think when we say that we can keep climate plans going as we go, because we're going to create some science fiction to, to deal with them, I think that is being irresponsible. And we've got to make sure we're talking in the language of science right now, because ultimately the climate doesn't care about political sloganeering. It doesn't care about economics. Uh, the climate cares about physics, and we've got to make sure we're meeting that. Similar with aviation too. I'm hoping we'll have a conversation today around the just transition and what do we do about those industries that do need to reduce or do need to change the way that they work. And again, I think we need to be honest with people that the way that we've been spending money on aviation and the constant expansion is not sustainable. And we need to look at reversing that back too. And I think we've got to be honest with people about that. And we saw that again during the pandemic, to come back to your question, John, that actually the pandemic wouldn't have wished on anyone, but actually it did give us an indication of what a society is like when everyone slows down, when the air is clean, when we start to shop more locally, when we get to know our neighbours. And I think if we can learn the right lessons from these crises, then I think we're going to be okay. But it's about making sure we are learning the right lessons and not taking us down the wrong path. You know, the pandemic, it got everybody together, didn't it? It got action. It got incredible response in terms of pace. And we, I, I'd love to see that coiled spring approach to climate change because um, it's, a, it's a much, much bigger issue. Uh, Sahil, um, your perspectives on the way the cost of living in crisis can become an opportunity rather than a threat? These are the times I'm really glad I'm not a politician because uh, getting the messaging right and these sorts of things is obviously a, a challenge. Public sentiment is, can obviously be focused on the here and now and very rightly so. But again, I think it goes back to sort of thinking about that bigger, bigger vision. I mean, the climate crisis is only going to exacerbate the cost of living crisis, whether that's now or when the next economic downturn hits us or the next change in geopolitical factors five years down the line, 10 years down the line. How you get that messaging right, of course, is is, is the challenge. But I do think if you have vision and a long-term direction and, and active policies to back that up, the law can obviously often be a woolly thing. And when you don't have specific enough policies uh, in place, you're susceptible to climate change becoming a political football. So if you don't actually commit to targets, wanted, even even having the 2050 net zero target has influenced behavior in ways that just didn't seem possible. But the government has now sort of left it to 2050 while not trying to do what it can in the short term. As, as difficult as it is to, to get the messaging right, there needs to be a positive case for why the climate crisis can't succumb to, to short-term pressures in that sense. I think in terms of cost of living, it's really where we can see businesses stepping up and a lot of the businesses that are part of the coalition or are part of the B Corp community have some really incredible examples of where they where they have really kind of are being supportive of their communities as well as um, making choices that are 
not necessarily a trade-off, especially around kind of reduction of energy. So looking at that being good for the planet, but also for, for their bottom line as well. So we we had a, a really interesting project that we ran at B-Lab with the Better Business Act and doing some research around the role of business through the cost of living crisis and produced a cost of living guide for business, which was full of ex- a, a bit of research and full of examples from the community around what can we do to to help and for businesses to really be stepping up and helping. And we we surveyed a, a group of purpose-led businesses, which were businesses like B Corps or or those from the Better Business Act coalition and businesses who were have changed their articles of association, so who have made that legal change. And actually those businesses are twice as likely to be looking at and um, protecting their workers and more than three times as likely to be looking after their supply chains and there's lots of kind of subsequent research around that which is just showing that really when you are in when when you're aligning that in in your articles of association you have that baked into your business the knock-on effect on things at, and being able to kind of create solutions to problems and business being part of that solution is huge so I think there's a, a big opportunity for businesses to to step up and to be doing that in in the right way but obviously needs needs the government backing for that as well. Becky, I'm going to kind of come to you. I I think I look at this from two different angles. I think that firstly, obviously businesses are under an incredible crunch and part of that crunch comes from the costs of climate change. And so one of the things that I try and encourage businesses to do, and I know that in this current environment, it's even harder to do this. But what I encourage businesses to do is start to calculate how much climate change is costing you not in 10 years, not as a projection, but today. Stay with me on this. It's a a long explanation, but I will get to the point. How much is climate change costing you today? Because it is costing you something. It's costing you a business today in increased insurance premiums. It's costing you in the warehouse that got flooded, which disrupted your supply chain. So some liquidated damages kicked in on a contract that you couldn't fulfill in time. So there are all sorts of costs to business today, not in 10 years time. And once you start to look at those costs today, in addition, of course, to the costs of living crisis, which are much more visible than the costs of climate, because most people can see when their energy bill is going up, but most businesses are not actually calculating what climate is costing them today. And then they ask businesses to look into the future and say, okay, well, given what we know about the trajectory of climate change, what is that cost likely to be in five years, in 10 years? How much bigger is it going to be? How much exponentially bigger? is it going to be? And now we can look at this in a context of return on investment. Yes, there is a cost of living crisis, but is there anything you can spend today to make that number in 10 years time much lower than it might otherwise have been? And really to try and firstly put it in that perspective, yes, we can, there's a painful cost of living crisis, but we cannot lose our heads as others have said and fail to see that if we don't tackle some of this now, we're going to be living this cost of living crisis tenfold in 10 years time because of the costs of what climate change is costing us as, as a world and as a business. So that's just the first thing. And I would also encourage people to think about the timescales on that. You know, we know from the IPCC, we've got about seven years. So forget 2050, we've got really seven years to tackle climate change and climate crisis. And that's roughly 83 board meetings for the average business, which is not a lot of board meetings. And for those of us who are the lawyers in the room, the contract lawyers like me, that's seven years minus the runoff time of any contracts you've got going on, because those are contracts you can't touch and you can't make better until they have run off. And any contract you sign today that doesn't have climate baked into it, well, you need to take 
the length of that contract off the seven years you've got to fix this. So I would like people to look at cost of living, acknowledging that it is very painful and very difficult, but looking at it in the context of how many years have you got left to solve this? How much more and how much more pain are you going to feel if you don't? The cost of living crisis does give a momentum to some of these changes that can actually be liberating and can address the issues that are so much more visible and be a kind of win-win, can't they? So I think it's back to where we started with Zach's comment about there is a real opportunity here. And, you know, it then makes me go back to the role of government and your point about clarity. And you, you almost need a, a clear guide to the, the changes that can minimise the cost of living crisis and insulate you, to nick that word, against the climate change uh, crisis, which is, you know, seven years is just around the corner, if that far. Sahil, do you want to kick us off with, you know, some of the legal changes that can address social and climate justice and what are the priorities there? You've got to look at this issue in a sort of a twofold way. Um, one is what substantively needs to change. And there's a lot of climate campaigners advocating for principles such as the precautionary principle to become a freestanding principle of, of English law, which which it isn't as, as things stand and courts have been a bit reluctant to ever impose that sort of obligation on government. So that's the kind of substantive change that I, I think is, is, is massively important. In addition, we there needs to be more support for movements like the Rights of Nature movement, which I think is a really fascinating growing area across the world. And, and we're certainly at the Good Law Project, but other campaigners particularly are, are looking to do more on that. And the third sort of substantive change that I do think needs to, needs to bed in quite quickly is how local government thinks about climate change. And at the minute, there are minimal obligations. And, and it was quite heartening today to see that um, Edinburgh City Council have, have now voted to divest their pension fund from, from fossil fuel investments. And how can we hold local councils to account for often the climate emergency declarations that they've made? So that's the kind of sort of substantive changes that I think we, we need. But I also think there's a there's a wider piece about the role that business and, and lawyers, I mean, I can talk about my industry, but, you know, that there's a lot of interesting debate at the minute about whether fossil fuel companies even should be represented legally. Um, and that's probably too complex a, a discussion for now. I, I'm probably more on Becky's side, which is how can we work with business um, to try and embed climate justice in, in, in the way they structure their contracts. Uh, but but sort of all of those movements need to happen and they need to happen um, at base, I think. And just, just from, from the government's perspective, I think uh, rhetoric needs to be matched with, with action. You can't, you can't talk about climate change and then still have an airports policy that advocates for Heathrow expanding or approving another fossil fuel project down in, in Sussex. I mean, it, it doesn't add up. So those are the changes that I think we need actively. Zach, do you want to come in on this and, and maybe make your kind of last kind of comments that you're free to run off? I think the first place to start here is with COP27 that we just had. And I welcome the loss and damage fund and the fact that we are looking at climate reparations. I think it's instinctive to most people that we should recognize that we benefited from colonialism, empire, the post-industrial revolution. And actually the countries who are least resilient to the effects of damaging climate chaos are those countries that are often the ones that have done the least to cause it. So it's right, there's a shift. But we also saw in those negotiations the power that fossil fuel companies have when they are represented at the top table. And I don't think this is some sort of conspiracy theory. I think you can quite clearly see the investment of money into governments to have 
that voice at the table. So something clearly needs to be done there. On a more positive note, though, governments can make huge shift. So in 1952, for instance, we saw the Great Smog. For anyone who doesn't know what this is, this was foggy conditions plus people burning fossil fuels that resulted in this horrendous smog over London. And in 1956, we got the Clean Air Act. That was the government stepping in, recognising that it wasn't enough just to ask people to burn less fossil fuels. They actually needed government intervention with business to make a difference. And a few years later, the smog was lifted. Now, we know we have another issue with air pollution at the moment, particularly in London where where I work. And I'm pleased to see through the House of Lords, we've just had Ella's Law. This is to do with Rosamond Kissy Deborah, who is the mother of Ella Kissy Deborah, who was a nine-year-old child who had air pollution ruled as cause of death on her death certificate because it exacerbated her asthma. And that was the first time in the world that air pollution was recognised as the cause of death. So this will be soon going to the Commons. And again, I think it's a really good example of where we need government intervention to make sure that businesses and individuals are doing the right thing. I'm concerned for instance, uh, the government are talking about doing an energy campaign later this year and next year, asking people to use less energy in their homes. Now, if you ask me, should people use less energy? Yes, I'd love people to use less energy. I'd love people to put jumpers on. I'd love people to drink uh, hot drinks and all of those things. But that's a privileged position because first of all, not everyone can do that. They might be extremely busy in their time or don't have the resources to do that. So when Boris Johnson's telling people to buy a cheaper kettle, I just don't think that is in touch with every people's everyday reality. But the bigger point is this. It can't be about those smaller individual changes. It comes to what I started with. It needs to be those big systemic changes, which is incentivize and condemn or sanction when necessary. And that's why government need to take the role with business to make sure that we're doing everything we can to tackle the climate crisis. So I think I'll end with where I started, which is all of these things interconnect. And too often we take these things as silos or we pretend that business is not working in a bigger kind of vacuum of what society needs. And business has to play a huge part in what society needs. And when I think about the best businesses to praise, they're the one that are taking that social purpose on both, yes, of furthering their business and growing their business, but also not in contrary to it, but actually to help with it, creating a better society too, and being proud of the role that we can all play as individuals, as businesses, as communities within making that society. And doing that, that's how we tackle climate change. Thank you very much, Zach. And um, Becky? Yes, I think I've got a couple of thoughts about this. Firstly, I think that there are a lot of businesses out there which are doing amazing work running ahead of regulation. And I would like the government to make their lives easier and to help the blueprint that they are creating be a blueprint for other people to achieve the same things. I think that we need to be looking at what is the business environment going to be in the world in seven to ten years' time? with the changing regulation, with the changing climate? And are you creating a business which is fit for that world, which is going to thrive in that world? Are you creating a business which has a place in that world right now? I think that what businesses are not necessarily taking into account is the resources that they benefit from, is probably a better way of saying it, in a biodiverse world, in a world with a just transition, the, the healthy communities that surround their supply chains and feed them the workers that, that come into their supply chains from those communities. And I think that to date, and I think this is probably where your work comes in, Murray, is that the Companies Act does not really require businesses to look in great detail at the richness and the diversity of the communities and the biodiversity that feeds their business and they just don't see it and that somehow i have a i suppose a, a naive belief that perhaps if business saw that and saw the damage and erosion that's being done to those things 
then they would be very quickly stepping in to reverse it because they would be able to see how that's going to impact their bottom line in three, four, seven years. So I think that for me, trying to bring everything together, it's about saying there's businesses doing great things, government needs to support them and, and showcase what they're doing so everyone else can follow to cut through all the noise of the information that's out there. But also that business has an amazing opportunity right now to see what it's going to lose in a biodiverse world and, and with the just transition if they don't take action now. And I'd encourage them to do that. As a pioneering SME who tries to go over and above, it's really, you're doing it in an environment, as in a business environment, where you're disadvantaged day in, day out. And it's incredibly challenging. And you, you do it because it's at the heart of what your business is about and because it's what you believe in. But the way regulation works and the way everything works, you're up against it, really. So I, I really, of course, I would applaud that. That's a principle. Um, Mari. Businesses have so much to, to offer in terms of how they work in partnership with government. And we just need to be encouraging that. And, and as you said, Becky, opening up that conversation within the boardroom so that those interests can be really looked at and the, and the conversation and the behaviour of directors is, is freed up from this idea that they've got to be making money for their shareholders at any cost. And I think that's, the, that's what the Best Business Act is all about. If there's anything that Cafe Direct or other businesses, B Corps can do, you know, we, we really want to change the framework in which we operate as well, because it, I think it will, it will enable those that are trying to do the right thing to, to, to benefit from that and therefore be even greater exemplars. And it will bring other people uh, on, the, on the journey. So I know it's been amazing listening to you all and, and thank you for joining. Thanks to our listeners for joining and do head to the Cafe Direct website and find this episode if you'd like to learn more about some of the topics discussed. And please make sure you rate and subscribe on the listening platform you use, as it really does help us to spread the word about the podcast. <laughs>